Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Controversial subjects with the facts can be tense, but we are ASAP Science here to make things make sense. Today, we are talking to Anna Gifty, a brilliant mathematician and economist. We talk about a lot of things, but Mitch and I really don't feel comfortable or, you know, before this interview said we didn't like economics, but she completely changes our mind and really zooms out and honestly explains to us a lot of how the world actually works. Yes, that is so true. Uh, The interview is really, really exciting. And I feel like we learned so much, so much so that even... In a minute, my what'd you learn this week? I looked up one related to sort of social economics, and I thought it was really cool. So stick around in like a little bit to hear that interview. But okay, you go first. Go on the social economics. Oh, we want to jump right into what you learned this week. Kind of. I I knew. I knew. I I mean, like, I just wanted to say like, hi. Oh, hi, 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 hi. We're also learning. We're still at home. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, nothing's changed. (laughs) Um, I don't know. What else is new? What's new with you? I don't like I'm honestly like I'm just like okay <laughs> I'm at home I'm reading a lot I got my legs up I'm cooking I'm feeling <laughs> okay a big O period K period that's my uh, life I mean at least it's summer I feel like the weather's been really quite nice and enjoying that and we are going to take some time off and I'm anticipating that so I feel like even the work we're doing now I'm like okay I, I can handle this because it's like coming uh, leading up to something exciting so I mean I'm happy going I'm away, reading and all these things but I do think it's the forgotten year and so I'm just like, let's get into what let's we learned just this forget week. It. Okay. <laughs> okay, fine. Oh, what did we learn this week? Okay, so like I said, mine is related to economics. I thought it was really fascinating because Anna opened my mind to not hate business and economics. But um, basically, the study I found was looking at the impact of government assistance programs and trying to figure out whether they were cost effective or like what is the actual trade off because it can cost the government X amount for a program, but does it bring back that money? Uh, is it worth it? Basically, was like the investments that they were trying to figure out. And especially because during COVID-19, a lot of uh, programs have had to be canceled or minimized because a lot of governments are under a lot of strain. So this study is recent and they've been just kind of like looking into that. Like, is it worth canceling these? Do they actually cost money, quote unquote? Um, So specifically, this study was looking at like fiscal prudence and whether or not these social programs lose money. And the truth was, Programs that focus on kids and young adults, most or many of them rather, sorry, uh, when all factors are considered, turn a profit for taxpayers. Wow. Because when you're helping kids, especially like the, the lifetime prosperity that they can bring in terms of their health, their tax that they pay, their great jobs that they get that like help bring society up. Um, 
and they need less government assistance when they're older hmm. uh, was just like something that has never really been calculated before. Uh, they looked at one specific example of a Medicaid expansion that happened in some states and not others that was for low-income pregnant women. And basically you would think like, okay, yeah, obviously if you're giving financial assistance to pregnant women, the government is spending money. So that's a loss of money. And overall in the woman's life, Rather, sorry, when she's like pregnant, the government is putting up a front cost, but they realized by the time those kids become adults, so these studies have been going on a really long time, those adults end up bringing back the cost because they pay more taxes, they have less health problems, and like a handful of other values that made them realize, even if you're just looking at money, they're actually worth it, these programs. I mean, okay... Yes, like obviously. Oh my god. Okay. This, again, the discussion later. So 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 important, and we learned so much. But I just think this is like this is this is. I'm relating it to science, and uh, let's even we're in Canada versus America. Wild to think that like you can't just show up at a hospital and have a child for free as an American. Just has a hearing from a Canadian. What? That's insane. <laughs> Second of all. It's like, this is the issue. Science, it costs money, but the long-term right. benefits of it are what are important. Know what's maybe even going to cost, I mean, there's arguments now, going to cost money. Climate change is here Mitigation, and it's yeah. coming. It maybe is going to cost money, but in many ways, the economics of climate change is only going to create more money in the future. Also, it's going to save your economies in the future. It's just, it's all about this like nearsighted versus farsighted. And I think it's just like, now I'm even making the connection between economics and science in that way, because of course things that cost money like this end up leading to right. more money in the future, but people are so short sighted. Yeah. Well, I, I will clarify one thing and cause I want to make a point about it. So not every program necessarily made money. I think they said 16 of the programs that they studied and did, and those were all focused on kids and young adults, but this study and the researchers also pointed out, like, we also shouldn't think that every single version of social assistance or ha impact or, or, should have to make money. They were just trying to make the point, like, look, if that's the only value you're using, a lot of these programs actually make money, which would not be, be people's initial assumption. But on top of that, like, there's lots of programs, obviously, that are just going to cost, but it helps your society function yeah exactly and it's like and then you might start be like basing things off of actual health or happiness or these mm -hmm. other factors which it would exactly. also help too which are more important than making money but sometimes people need to hear the making money piece because you know some people are only motivated by that <laughs> more into economics again you are gonna see a, our tides turn on that okay i'm okay. gonna say what i learned because it has nothing to do with economics so <laughs> sorry everyone but we can get into it um, so I'm reading this book called The Shapeless Unease, which is about insomnia. And I must say it's arresting and written in such a way that I could not fall asleep last night. What? And I actually, is that think, what it's supposed to do? Okay. <laughs> it's, it, it's such a, like, it's a beautifully, I mean, I don't even want to say beautiful. It's a, it's a really well-written book that it like got under my skin, which if that's what you're looking for. Go seek out this book, but I is it? It's like a fiction story. It's a fiction story, okay. But very, I think a lot of the books I've been researching are like very rooted in science, and the way that she is able to speak about science, I find fascinating. But it's a fiction author. I think there's a lot to learn. I'm I'm really getting into fiction right now, and I'm learning sometimes more about science than I am from nonfiction. Do you know what I mean? I think that's a really great life lesson to learn. Not that you necessarily. I'm not saying like you can't learn obviously so much science from nonfiction books, but I think you can learn a different way when you're reading, especially science fiction. Books. Well, it goes back to what we talk about in our interview today. A lot of the time with people who are interested in science and economics, but also art, and people who have diverse ways of looking at the world, it is really helpful. Sometimes I find nonfiction science books to be really hard to digest the information 
information. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you have someone who is like an artist and a scientist, you can sometimes like merge those things together to create something that's actually more impactful, which I Mm -hmm. would say is what this book is doing to the point that I couldn't fall asleep. And, um, it really uh, made me think I need to finish this book in one day, have a couple <laughs> nights of rest of sleep and then be done with it. But she was talking about death. Um, and after you die, almost speaking of digestion, almost straight away, your body starts auto autolysis. Autolysis. I don't know. How it's, it's probably lysis means. Like all your cells dying and stuff and exploding. Is that what you mean? Yeah. So the bacteria that are in your gut, which are already there, which are in your gut the whole time you're alive, start to eat your cells. They spread to your stomach, your chest, your thighs. And essentially it's like these bacteria that are living within you, you have spent your whole life and with your living cells containing them and helping you stay alive. You're working in symbiosis with them. But then it's like the second you die, they're the first things to actually start this sort of famous thing that's going to happen to all of us, which is the digestion of our bodies and like going back into the earth. And it's the actual bacteria that are in you right now that are the first things that start to Mm. And I just thought like I don't know I just it was it was just made me think it was like I can't I know we've made a video about that but it like re-brought this like sort of thought process around your gut microbiome into like a new light kind of disturbing I guess but to me I found it very um, interesting and I just I don't know it's maybe an example of the vibe that this book gives off but it reminds me of how people say if you were to die in your home alone with your dog, your dog would eat you. Okay, like, no. If it was to starve to death. You know what I mean? It obviously is not just going to eat you, but someone once told me that like that happens in real life because obviously if an animal's starving, but I was like, that's I, disturbing. Okay, yeah. And then maybe it's because your microbiome is like not getting the other stuff it needs and it's like desperate. I don't know. Oh I'm, my God, I'm, you, I'm went so more, you went so more. But there, and I will also say that dog, <laughs> cat, eat your face thing. I've, I don't know. That seems Whether like, true. yeah, that seems very internet, very like, I mean. Okay, I'm a conspiracy theorist. Okay? No, no, no. I'm just like, I don't want to even say that because it's like, the, it's like I was like, my, what I'm saying is disturbing. And then we just pushed it in the name. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But, um, um, oh my God, now let's get into economics. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> we'll bring the tone back to something exciting and positive. Uh, this is our interview with Anna Gifty. Time to get to know ya. So we are here with Anna Gifty, and I'm going to read a little bit about you because you are very impressive. <laughs> An alumni of Harvard University. Okay. <laughs> you studied mathematics with a minor in economics. You're a researcher, entrepreneur, writer, and speaker, and you're very famous with your work for the Sadie Collective, which is the first and only organization dedicated to addressing the pipeline and pathway problem for black women in economics and related fields. So we want to talk about that today, plus many other things. So happy to see you, Anna. <laughs> Thank you. And let me just make a really quick quick correction, excuse me. Okay. Um, I actually went to UMBC, so University of Maryland, Baltimore County, but I did spend time at Harvard this past year as a student as well. Okay. Fellowship program. We don't okay. want to, we don't want to forget about the actual, the prior, very, very famous, say Another. that, uni- say that, fi- say that university again, because they need more shout outs. <laughs> I say University of Maryland, Baltimore County. There Go we go. <laughs> also, like, honestly, I mean, we can get right into it, but like this whole like elite university, Harvard thing, like, it's so frustrating to me. Uh, yes. Okay. You are, you're saying no, no, no. It's, I, I, it's, oh, it's overrated. It's overrated. Totally. Honestly. And, and what you'll find about, you know, I'm not shading Harvard explicitly, but I'm sitting my tea a little bit. Like <laughs> what you'll find is that a lot of these institutions are decentralized. 
Um, and so you have people kind of doing their own thing all over campus. So, you know, even in talking with students who actually go there and get their degree there, like a lot of them, it's really hard for them to find resources and, you know, people to reach out to on campus, even though you would think that, you know, an Ivy League university would have all the resources, all the money, all the experts in the world, in terms of you actually getting connected to it, it's a dub. You won't. <laughs> so, yeah. So. And we've, we've done videos also about like, um, you know, going to these schools where like, I guess they have elite names and how it's not necessarily going to be a better education for you. It's not necessarily going to be good for your morale to be around all these like type A people like that part yeah, yeah like i sort just of like the the little fish in a big pond concept right. where like you could be like the smartest person you know but you go there and then you start to feel like you are no longer the smartest person and there's right. like yeah there's interesting research about how much research gets published and people who go to other schools end up publishing more than people who are considered like the top 20 percentile of harvard you know what i mean because when they're there they're like i'm so stupid right and who's to say that like publishing is any indicative like feature of who you are and the kind of work you can produce you know what i'm saying yeah yeah. that's a weird yeah just kind of being like kind of being in (laughs) living in cambridge (laughs) was like living with a bunch of academics 24 7 Hmm. and i was like i don't mess with this (laughs) like at all like who, who would choose this life you know but some people really thrive off of that environment um yeah. Wait. So, so you did, know, it is what it is. So you grew up in Cambridge. Is that what you're saying? Oh, no. Cambridge was um, Cambridge House is Harvard. Okay. Okay. Where okay. I was for the year. Okay. I grew up in Maryland. Okay. Um. Yeah. Which is yeah. like. Wait, oh my God. We're, yeah, we're Canadians. Canadians. We don't we're, know yeah. geography oh, of America at all. No. No. But <laughs> no, no. We should know. We should know. I definitely feel like I've been near Mary <laughs> Maryland. So okay. Where? If you've been, if you've been near DC, okay. right? DC is house between two states. Virginia, which is crusty, and <laughs> Maryland. So Maryland is like a um, smaller state and it has actually way more black people. It's actually home to like more, most of the wealthiest like black folks in the country. So like all of the counties that have, you know, super high, um, what was I going to say? Uh, GDP per capita for black people, like Maryland. That's where we are. I don't live in those areas, but like, yeah. (laughs) Well, this is okay. So this is you. I feel like we've even in talking to you a bit before we started recording. You're you're just have your finger on the pulse of economics. Like you're able to talk about. You knew how much money we were getting paid here in Canada for COVID. Like so. Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) To clarify, not us personally. Yeah. I was sad. (laughs) So so I'm we no. Nothing about economics. Okay, this is not a strong point for us, but I would love for you to talk about how you got interested in it because I think, I don't know, I've never really been interested in it. Like, where did this like seed of knowledge start for you? Wow, that's a great question. So let me just define what I think economics is. Okay, yes, Some people might come for me, but you know, it is what it is. So essentially economics is sort of the study of kind of looking at how do you maximize limited resources And honestly, like that definition actually can change depending on sort of the perspective you're looking at it. So most people don't like this sort of maximization definition just because it kind of like feeds into capitalism and that sort of thing. And obviously like white men have been able to take that and exploit everybody. So like there's different ways to think about economics, but I'm still a student of economics. So I'm still learning alongside y'all. But what I will say about my journey into economics it actually begins with biology. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 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 We bow down. You, we bow you, down. You hooked us in. Yeah. 
and how much I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> ah, that was so, a good I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> sorry. Uh, oh my God. And I oop, yeah. <laughs> so, so what I will say, will say is that I actually spent a lot of my sort of younger years talking with my dad and brother about politics and economics without really knowing what those things were. Uh, my brother actually introduced me to The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, and I was hooked. So, like, every day I would tune in. I'm like, man, like, how does he know all this stuff? This is so dope. And then I would also spend a lot of time watching TED Talks. I was that kid who watched TED Talks and then also watched Gossip Girl in the evenings, right? So like that was sort of like my schedule <laughs> throughout the day. Your verse. And so, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so essentially um, when I got to college, however, like I am um, a child of African immigrants, specifically from Ghana. And a lot of African immigrants believe that there's only three career choices, lawyer, engineer, doctor. There's nothing else in the <laughs> sphere of career choices the idea of even being like a YouTuber or influencer, it's not not even it's like it's not even here. So um, for me, when I entered college, initially I entered college as a business major, and then I transferred and then became a biology major, where I spent about a year and a half in that. Um, the class for me that <laughs> made me realize that this was not my calling. It was my wasn't my ministry was organic chemistry. Oh, okay. Actually, I spent quite a quite a bit of time. As a pre-med bio person, like watching ASAP science videos and like trying to find concepts that were going to be on my test on y'all's videos, I'm like, okay, they add, you know, some interesting things to it. And there's some pictures I can, I can kind of follow. I'm a visual. <laughs> so you got, you know, I was very deliberate. And so um, I was like, maybe there's other ASAP science type things out there that get into like, you know, what a, a, mo a monometer is. I don't even know what the word is anymore, but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, you monomer. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and so for me, organic chemistry was just really painful. I, I spent so much time studying and, and it just didn't work. Like yeah. I, I definitely got that C and I'm proud of that C because it showed that I did my best. But um, the other class for me at the same time that I was taking was cell biology. And at some point my professor was talking about signal transduction. And I literally was sitting like this and I was like, wow, I don't care about this. <laughs> <laughs> this is so horrible. <laughs> Simultaneously, I had just been introduced to research, biomedical research in particular. And I was like, this is actually kind of dope. I like the idea of asking questions, but the kind of questions I want to ask are a little bit bigger than the cellular level. Hmm. I definitely appreciate this. And so somebody um, in the lab actually put me on a data project. And I was like, oh, Y'all collect data and analyze it. Okay, maybe like I need to change my major. And this was like, I had maybe eight classes left in my major. My mom was like, you're throwing your life away. What are you doing? And I was like, okay, I think I should change my major to math. And so I changed my major to math on a whim. And literally within two weeks, I fell into this thing called economics that was introduced through a variety of different conversations. And pretty much for me, kind of married my interest in math and my like deep desire to understand social issues in a really sort of intuitive way. So that's sort of how I got into economics. Wow. That's, that's really fascinating. Cool. Yeah, that was really long. No, <laughs> no, but it's so interesting. It, and I, I, I don't know, like the zooming out sort of thing. What were you going to say? Yeah. Just that it's an interesting way to connect the dots around like, like I've never thought of economics through 
like social constructs in that way. Like because right. because my natural instinct is biology and I'm like, how can I connect biology to those social constructs? It's just interesting to be like, yes, everyone can come at these challenges that we all face as humans from those different angles. And that's really cool. And I right. also, okay, I just want to say, like I have such a judgment of economics and I honestly think <laughs> it's just like, it's just because I think white straight dudes sucking the life out of humanity. Like that's my instinct. And I'm curious, like, I don't know. Like, I, I want you to change my mind on this. And I'm so, I, even you, you already sort of have and just their way of talking about it. Like, I think a lot of my life is spent obsessing yeah. about science, believing in like socialist structures and then being yeah. like against economics because I assume it's innately like bad. But then I know deep down it's like, makes everything function. And so I'm just curious what, how you sort of like, you know, navigate all of that. And I'm also curious, obviously about, um, the Sadie collective and I don't know, maybe that can Oh yeah, connect, we'll, we'll but... get to it. We'll, okay. let's, let's have this conversation. Okay, yeah, yeah. I think, I think your, your read on economics is accurate. It is white. It is male. Um, specifically cis male, right? You have, you know, individuals who don't understand intersectionality and power in the economics profession. And that has been a huge problem for a very, very long time. I think a lot of people, when they look at economics, what they really think about is Wall Street, um, finance, banking. That's a very, very, very small part of economics. Hmm. But of course, that's tied to some really big institutions that kind of rule the rest of us, right? You know, when the 2008 financial crisis came crashing down, all of us were affected. And it's really because some white guys made some really bad decisions um, and were including black and brown folk in the room. And so when we talk about, you know, what economics is, again, it's this sort of big idea of like, I'm trying to understand how the world functions using sort of analytical tools to pull out data that can tell a story about how we can make the world better. And that applies to everything. So I'm gonna give you a couple fields that economists kind of sit in. So economists can, you know, work with public health officials. They can study teacher behavior. They can study student outcomes. One of my favorite studies is um, uh, 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 an economist that I know, Dr. Dania Francis. Shout out to Dania. Hi, <laughs> Hi Dania. Hi, Dania. <laughs> <laughs> Essentially, it's a study that shows that um, counselors in high schools actually have bias against Black women when it comes to AP calculus. They don't recommend them holding everything else equal. And so that's actually empirical evidence that could you know, point to like, okay, well, these counselors are clearly racist and sexist. How do we go about adding mechanisms that prevent them from, you know, keeping black girls out of pursuing math at a higher level within high school, right? So when we talk about economics being applied to everything, there are economists that study sex work. There are economists who study your phone. Um, the, the person who, or the organization, excuse me, that hires the most economists, I mean, we don't mess with them, but Amazon, right? Amazon hires a lot of economists to just kind of figure out the marketplace and how do you go about making decisions. And so when you think about, what economists do and, and who they affect, they do a lot and they affect everyone. And so it's really important for the, the field itself to be as diverse as possible, given just sort of the ramifications that can happen if it's not diverse. Wow, okay, I have, I have two questions. One, sure. does, does economics always have to involve money or is it just data? Because when you're talking about that calculus research, I'm like, there's not necessarily money intertwined with this. So is it? actually just a study of data? To some degree it is, right? And it depends on the type of economist you are. So there's some economists who just look at the models and are trying to develop theories that can be then used and applied with data. 
And then there's the most of most economists are actually more applied, which means that they take the data that they collect from some field study or perhaps they get administrative data that's available through the U.S. Census. By the way, fill out the U.S. Census form for those listening. <laughs> yes, do that. Oh, my God. That's now, really important data. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Is that is it mandatory or is it is it? Um, don't know if it's mandatory, but I do know that like, you could probably ignore it if you wanted to. Like, okay. please don't. Yeah. So okay, okay. Gotcha. That kind of data is used by economists and social scientists more broadly to make recommendations on who should get jobs, why they should get those jobs, um, you know, the financial market and that sort of thing. So, again, I think when you, you kind of boiled it down to the bare bones. It's really the study of how do we use um, data to understand social issues that are happening right now. Okay, well, so, now, yeah. I, now yeah. I like economics. <laughs> <laughs> well, it reminds me, like, one of the recent episodes, yeah. we just recorded an episode on, like, sibling order that will be out mm. by the time this podcast, we haven't released it out yet, but it will be out by the time this comes out. And it was an economist who was studying, like, the imp- implication of, you know, if you're the firstborn, secondborn, thirdborn, fourthborn, how that impacts, like, your education outcome, your, like, right. the uh, salaries you make outcome. And it's interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I, I hadn't really stopped and thought like, oh, that was an economist who was trying to understand the disparities between like what your birth order is and how that right. implicates your future. And that isn't right. like you're right. Like I often think of money, but when you look at it this way, it's kind of like, what is the long term implication of this? And is that good or bad? And if it's bad or we're not sure, should we change that? So then there must exactly. be a big overlap between economists and science and social science, because I all, some of the things you're saying are making me think of social science. So yes. is, is economics social science? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like... <laughs> I, I'm, We're learning a yes, lot. It is a, <laughs> <laughs> oh so economics is an interesting... So just to answer your question really quick. Um, so you don't need to involve money to talk about economics, right? As, you know, as it was just mentioned, like you can study sort of sibling order, you know, why people text certain way, like there's so many things you can do. The idea is that economics provides you this really nice toolkit that allows you to apply it to a lot of different things. Um, And quite literally anything you really can think of that can be measured um, with respect to data and analysis is like, you know, sort of fair game in economics. With respect to your last question, yes, economics is social science. It's also STEM according to the National Science Foundation, which is kind of interesting. When you say that to people, they're like, that's not what the E stands for. You're right. (laughs) (laughs) But economics, to some degree, is so mathematical and statistical that I think NSF actually considers it STEM. Um, But it is more so a social science, and it does overlap with a lot of different fields. The gag is, though, economists don't like to cite other folks. They (laughs) only like to cite economists. And I think that comes down to, honestly, folks thinking that their toolkit is the best toolkit and they can't you know, pull from other disciplines. Quite frankly, I think economists work really well. If I mean, ideally they would work really well with sociologists, um, depending on what the topic is, epidemiologists, right? So you had a lot of economists in the New York Times and other you know, outlets recently saying like, I'm, I'm suddenly an epidemiologist because I know how to use this data. And epidemiologists were like, no, 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 baby. Like, that's not your field, and you should cite those who actually are specialized in it. So I think, again, my, my qualm with economics is that it's not sort of embracing of different perspectives, both with, within it and outside of it. And so, yeah, it is a social science, just to 
answer your question. Whoa, I, my mind's kind of being blown. Yeah, because that's also really? like, I yes, no, no, it is. I'm, I'm just so ignorant. And I'm always like, I like, I like Wall Street, <laughs> like Wall Street, and I'm like, oh my god, it's like they're actually studying all the stuff that I'm so interested oh, in and yeah. need to know. Yeah, yeah, because all yeah. these constructs help to decide how our societies function, right? But it's so interesting right. that you mentioned that it's almost like you have talked about intersectionality within economics, but almost now mm -hmm. even like intersectionality with other fields, because that, yeah. that diversity of perspectives from like different fields as well can bring so much to each of them. So we yeah. like have um, done a lot of research about how important diversity, gender, sexuality, race in science is to actually create effective interesting well-researched yep. science so like one yep. study we always talk about it's like a really interesting study where they just look at the last names of different people who have written scientific papers and the the more diverse those last names are the more likely those papers are to be cited and as you said earlier that doesn't necessarily mean like cited doesn't necessarily good but if we're under the assumption that more likely a paper will be cited if it's doing something interesting or worth citing. Yeah. It's just a very a simple way. Honestly, an, econ an economist maybe did this study now that I'm thinking about <laughs> yeah. what economics is. Large data sets, it's just so clear why in the sciences you need diverse perspectives in order yeah. for it to flourish. Thinking of economics, what is it like when it comes to diversity? What are the issues? Like, I can only imagine, and I have it. I mean, I've, but I'm just saying, I've had a lot of assumptions about it that I've already been torn down a bit. So I'm just, I want to hear what you would say. Yeah. So I'll tell you guys a story. Um, when I decided to become a math major and then eventually pick up economics, um, I had the opportunity to go to a conference for the first time. It's the largest conference of economists like ever. Um, essentially, it's like thousands of economists will come somewhere for like a week or weekend rather, and then, you know, they'll convene or whatever. Um, it was kind of like a high school reunion, but you know, like if you're new, it's kind of like, oh, what's going on? <laughs> like, what are these dynamics? But anyway, <laughs> I had an opportunity to go to the Nobel Laureate Lunch. So for those who don't know, one of the Nobels that are available, but it's not an official Nobel, quite frankly, it's like a subsidiary Nobel, but like Off it's Nobel. Nobel. Yeah. <laughs> Off Nobel, thank you. Um, Nobel Laureate of Economics. And so, they celebrate whoever wins that um, the previous year during this conference. And so I went and I went to the luncheon mainly for the food because conferences don't be feeding you. And so I was like, free food, whatever. Um, I, I went in and I was really excited. And then the high table walked in. And I was like, hmm, I'm looking a little beige because <laughs> what is going on? And it was just like, you know. It was like a, a dash of brown. I think it was an Indian guy or somebody from Southeast Asia. And I was just kind of like, this is quite interesting. And then I was like, let me just take a quick swivel around the room and see like what we're dealing with here. And so I looked around and I was like, wow, this room is white. It's a lot of white guys. And I was like, huh, like if I didn't have support system that I have currently, I would have been dissuaded by the room entirely. Like, and the unfortunate thing is that that, that room is sort of a, um, I would say, a, a, a metaphor for what is happening in the profession largely, right? I don't know if I use that word correctly. Yeah, no, I think you did. <laughs> Y'all got it. Um, <laughs> and so, like, you have a lot of economists who are white, male, many times privileged in some sense. And so, you know, like... It, it's discouraging when you think about the statistics that comes along with sort of the lack of diversity in economics currently. So for example, um, about 1,197 
um, folks graduate with an economics PhD last year. Go ahead and guess how many of them were black women. You might already know just because you researched it. No, we didn't research it. I'm scared just throw a number guess. out there. Out of a out of a thousand and a hundred, it's yet. That's also it's it's about twelve hundred. Okay, that's a low number. Like, but you said for PhDs, um, uh, fifty, a hundred, five. Oh, Oh, I was gonna say a hundred as well. (laughs) Oh my god, that's crazy. So that that's less than half of one percent. It's about zero point four percent. Um, and the numbers aren't great for undergrads either, which I think. Oftentimes, people look to that as like this is the pipeline. Well, the pipeline is trash, right? You have like. 2% 2% of economics um, majors are black women. And so what is going on, right? Because black men are actually not facing the same sort of um, disparity in a sense. Like, yes, they are still significantly underrepresented, but at least at the undergraduate level, like um, Dr. Rhonda V. Sharp, who's done some work on this, found that within a decade period, um, the, like the percentage growth of black men majoring in economics at the undergraduate level at HBCU, so historically black colleges and universities, grew by about 42 percent. Oh, wow. Actually, I think it was all universities, excuse me, 42 percent or so. For black women, it was 1 percent. Wow. So it's kind of like, OK, so what's going on? Like, yes. are y'all like and so when you like, interestingly enough, like the American Economic Association, which looks over like all of the economists, essentially, and it puts on this big conference did a, a survey, right? They have been in the news up and down because, you know, somebody came out with a paper that showed that, you know, there was this, like, I don't want to say their names, but like, you know, this anonymous form that was, you know, saying all these things about women and, you know, minorities or whatever. And, you know, like that went viral when somebody reported on it in the New York Times. And so economics had to actually like address it. And it was actually in the heat of Me Too. And so I think what's happening is that economics it oftentimes kind of moves with the societal changes that are happening. Hmm. That's the inter- issue with that is, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, I was like, that's kind of interesting that, oh, eco- oh, okay. that economics <laughs> is like fluidly moving with society while it's simultaneously fluid, trying exactly. to study it kind of. Yeah. And that's the thing. So like, my thing about economics is that it's too important of a discipline for it not to be diverse. And so let me go ahead and just give you an example. So y'all remember the 2008 financial crisis, right? Everybody was broke for the most part. Um, Wall Street was on fire, essentially. And so um, there was like house foreclosures. So people were like losing their homes. People were getting bad loans given to them, that sort of thing. The thing about the financial crisis is that about a couple of years before 2008, all of those things that were happening to everybody was happening to black and brown communities, like mm. ridiculously. And so black and brown economists are looking at it's like, yo, do you guys see what's going on with our communities? Like, can we address this? I think this is indicative of something that's about to happen. And when I tell you that it was not discussed at like the highest levels of people making economic policy around sort of how do we move, um, how do we manage the U.S. economy so that it's beneficial for folks? Everybody ignored it for the most part until 2008, everything hit. What ended up happening is that during the period after 2008, Black women ended up losing the most jobs out of everybody. Um, And currently what's happening right now with um, COVID-19 is Black women, again, are losing a lot of jobs. I think at this point, Black women unemployment rate is at 16%. That's horrible, right? You have a lot of like Black adults who are out of a job. Black women in particular um, are really important to the communities because about 
70, over 70% of black mothers in particular are breadwinners in their houses. So if they lose their jobs, you have just now like, I'm not gonna say like taken out in a community, but essentially you are putting a lot of communities at risk. And so it's really important that you know, if you want to have inc an inclusive economy that really sort of centers everybody that you are really kind of prioritizing these voices, these black and brown voices that have been saying a lot for a long time, but people have not been paying attention to them. Wow, that's mind blowing because it's like, I, I'm just, I'm relating it to science because it's like, I see how important it is yeah. to have diverse voices in science because science, it, obviously in our opinion, is extremely important. But then hearing, I mean, it's just like we live so viscerally within this system of like finances and capitalism. And yes, as much as I can be like, I don't like it. I don't know anything about it. Right, like right. it's, I know how it just really is governing all of our lives. And so to think that now realizing like how important diversity is in that world to actually stop things like the 2008 financial crisis, to stop things like the economic disparities we're feeling now, I'm, it's more making me just think like I'm totally going back to the beginning of this where I, I'm like I'm now so you're an economist now. I know no <laughs> like I'm just I, I'm just so like I'm so it's almost like I've been like hit with how important really? these things are <laughs> yes yes and I feel so ignorant and it's like because I, I well it feels like, like it's almost a self-perpetuating system where like yeah. you don't want to partake in it because it's a system that looks and does benefit like certain types of people rich white dudes but then you realize the only way to actually change it is to partake in that system. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. It, it's like, it's actually like sort of, it's, it's, that's why I can only really say like blowing my mind because it's making me realize that if you, if I, if I keep my back up or I just keep getting frustrated about this thing, which is wall street, which isn't fair because I'm like, okay, there's so much more, but still right. even just like not being in, like in school, me and Mitch are always like, you know, I did art and science. You, we, we essentially are always like, we don't know anything about business and like kind of sure, like, sure. almost like wear it as like, not like a badge of honor, but sometimes I'm like, yeah, I'm not interested because it's like capitalist and blah, but it's like, right. wait, no, if you don't address and talk about the things you're talking about, we're just sitting back and leaving this system in the hands of these people who without this diversity are actually making horrible decisions aren't listening to people in order to like avoid something like the 2008 financial crisis. That story yeah. is fascinating. And I'm like, how have I never heard it before as someone who tries to read like diverse right. things like, Oh my God. And so I don't know, yeah. I guess I more, I'm now trying to think, what do you think are the best ways? And this is a really tough question because we're thinking sure. about it right now with science, but what are the best ways to make these systems more diverse in your opinion you can say your opinion, but it doesn't have to be um, like the right answer, obviously, because like everyone has their own sort of version. But I'm curious, yeah. like already you have blown my mind enough that I'm just like, what would you think would be the best thing to do? Yeah. You know, you, you asked a question that I think is twofold in a sense. So I think there is the, you know, actual changing of economic systems. So they're beneficial to everybody. Mm -hmm. And so with regards to that, I would say there's an idea that. Janelle Jones, who's the, the managing di policy director, excuse me, at a place called Groundwork Collective, um, coin called Black Women Best. And it's this idea that if you actually center economic policies on Black women and bettering them, everybody gets benefited because they are essentially the most marginalized group. We are essentially the most marginalized group. So if you go ahead and you center um, economic Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Policies and sort of recovery efforts on Black women, everybody's alleviated as a result. And if you think about it, Black women face a lot of, you know, issues with rent, right? So all the evictions that are happening right now are going to disproportionately impact Black mothers, especially those who are single mothers. Um, and then if you think about sort of the different sort of opportunities that come along with small business funding, a lot of the minority um, entrepreneurs in the United States are Black women. And so, again, if you were just shooting for Black women, you might just get everybody. And so I think that's like one really tangible sort of economic policy that thankfully is getting a little bit more press now um, and hopefully will make its way to, you know, ranks of power that can really start to critically examine whether or not that would be something that they could actually put into practice um, over the next few months. And I, and I actually even wrote an article about like, if we don't do this, I'm not sure what kind of economy we're going to have at the end of this, because you cannot afford to have Black women lose all of their jobs. Black women make up the majority of the Black working population in the United States. Um, you can't afford to ignore this group. And if you do, Everybody's going to be, you know, you know, hurt and in, in, in pain. I guess I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like it, it's just sure, not going to yeah. be beneficial. Wow. Um, in terms, in terms of diversifying the actual, you know, economic system in terms of like discipline and the professions. <sighs> I know. I'm sorry. That's such a tough question. <laughs> no, it's okay. Yeah. No, it's just a question that I'm like. It just really boils down to commitment, right? And admitting that you don't know all the answers. I definitely don't know all the answers. I try to approach things as, you know, like I'm still a student, I'm still learning. Um, but you have a lot of white folks and non-black folks more generally that assume that they're better allies than they are, right? They say, well, you know, I have one black friend that I met at Harvard and so <laughs> I'm done. And it's like, no, Susan, you're not, right? Like what you need to do is you are in a position of power you, you know, you're, you're cited, people respect you. You need to take that power and privilege and ensure that the black folks in around your, you know, around your workplace get that same access to power and privilege. I think I broke it down in on, uh, on Twitter in a thread recently about, you know, racism is just a question of power. Who has power and who has access to it? And if you are not willing to dismantle the, the, the system that has allowed white people in particular to have power for quite some time, you are you are complicit, period, right? And I think people don't like to admit that, that like, oh, like, I'm not a racist. It's not a personality trait. It's about, you know, are you participating in a system that is exclusionary of, you know, marginalized groups? And you, you have to grapple with that within yourself before you kind of go out and say, you know, I'm an advocate for diversity and inclusion. 
No, you're not if you are only hiring one black person in your entire organization per year, right? You, I, I've heard of a lot of economists who study, economists and social scientists more broadly, who study sort of issues along the lines of race and discrimination and bias. And then you look at their co-authors, you look at who they work with, you look at who they're training, they don't look like me. Wow. What are yeah. you doing? <laughs> yeah, <no. laughs> you know one thing it's I want to say, one thing I want to say at the top that's funny is just like how we started by being like uh, an alumni of Harvard, and then since I've just gone on to fully drag Harvard this whole entire <laughs> time. Harvard is fine. Harvard is fine. Yeah. So they don't, you know, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, true. There's true. honestly true. issues. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But um. <laughs> No, th that is so fascinating. And I think like it is so true. And I think this is a really um, important time and I for that discourse to be happening. Yeah. And I really uh, hope and I really hope that it continues to happen. Yeah. Go I was just going to bring up like it's a really interesting discussion around like power as as the theme here, because I can even see some relation to right now in politics. Like I, I feel a lot of scientists in particular being like, hey, we need to engage with politics. Like I think in general, people are like, oh, I want to be a scientist, not a politician. But now we're realizing like when we don't have scientists in politics, th then it causes problems. And I think I'm just like speaking out loud here. So just like bear with me as I like put yeah, this all no together, problem. but it's like, it feels like the people that need to be lifted up the most are often the ones who are not even hunting for power. Like they're the most giving people like black women holding their community together. People who crave to be scientists who want to like do good for the world innately right. are not power hungry innately, I think. And it's like, how do we create a system that can benefit the people who are not like wanting to abuse power, but giving them like putting them in the positions of power because they're the most likely to be like, generous with their power at the end of the day but right. it is like it's almost a catch-22 because it's like those people aren't necessarily craving or chasing power if you know what i mean mm -hmm. right yeah and then the people who are are the ones who are like not going to be equitable with their power in the first place that part you got it and i think that honestly science is in it, i think science is inherently political mm -hmm. right if yes. we think about science let's go in history the tuskegee experiment Woo! Mm -hmm. And many, many other things that happen to black and brown folk at the hands of, you know, white like scientists, science, yeah. right? And non-black scientists. And it's kind of like, okay, like, yes, you can. And, and I think that's something that a lot of my, my, my friends who are also in the sort of natural science, physical science space are like, a lot of my PIs are like saying, if I bring up certain things, it's racist, yada, 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 right? You cannot separate science and identity. You know, a lot of times our identity informs the kind of questions that we ask. Mm -hmm. And science is really about you trying to answer questions using a specific type of methodology. And so you can't say that science, I'm not saying that's what you're saying, but I'm saying, you know, like in general, people can't say that science is divorced mm -hmm. from politics. And I would argue that because people have viewed it like that, that's why our politics looks the way it does. Hmm. Climate change is still up for debate. Huh? <laughs> what is that? Why is it up for debate? Do That's... people not know what's going on? You know what I'm saying? It's so. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, <laughs> I think this is so like. Thank you for saying that because this is something that we have really had to grapple with for a while. Yeah. And it's like, it's, it, it's interesting. It's also a science. Like we should speak mostly from the lens that we know, which is science communication. Also, I want to shout out your Twitter at Anna. Is it at Anna Gifty? <laughs> That's it. No, no, it's at it's Afronomics. Oh yeah, yeah, okay. It's <laughs> it's Afronomics because it's just also like you've mentioned your Twitter and already I'm like your Twitter is freaking oh, amazing. Oh, thank yeah. you. So go go 
go i was gonna say subscribe a youtuber vibe follow <laughs> um but in the world of science communication we have had to deal with this because a lot of people are way, mm. they, they're like we will not talk about politics because science isn't political or they think they're gonna like lose fault there's just this really strong discourse of not even scientists these are science communicators saying we are not political and it's just it's so frustrating because of everything you said and i've been um i just finished a book uh about um, immigration, very mm -hmm. fascinating book. But what she literally lays out is that the first time that science was ever really accepted was by Carl Linnaeus, full-on racist, disgusting fuck. <laughs> he was the first, it was the first time that the King of France decided to allow science to exist as something outside of religion. And all he essentially did was just list like, full white supremacy. He was like, white people are a separate species. They're good. Then you have the people from Asia. They're bad. You have the people from the Americas. They're bad. You have the black people. They're bad. It's literally science was created. It was a, it was a racist ideology that was created at a time. And it was the first time we ever were allowed to listen to something that wasn't religion in the Western view of things. So it's like the literal birth of science is political and it's racist. And so it's Ooh. like, it's 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 really sad but it's like but but it makes you realize like now like I, I just think before I think when people would tell us like we're not political it would bother us but we weren't really sure why and with everything mm -hmm. happening it's starting and and like what you just said it's starting to be like are you kidding me climate change is a very obvious example where it's mm -hmm. like we can no longer allow people like you said scientists to say we aren't political and hopefully mm -hmm. with time with a lot of things are that are, we're talking about now it's about you know the fluid movement of time things will change and people will be getting into science even hearing you talk getting into economics in order to right. try and change the system and like that's the hope that i have but like my god like that's such a good point science is political economics is obviously political and if we need the politicians to make these decisions they need to understand that like they need to represent the people that they are like in their countries which brings me to another question and i'm just hitting you with hard questions so you're allowed to <laughs> wait can i interject before you yes 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 okay, please sorry so this is to the science communities that are listening to this podcast silence is still a decision if you don't say anything you still made a decision, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that is structurally violent to have individuals who follow you and who rely on, um, who you kind of rely on to sort of keep you going and that sort of thing that are from, you know, marginalized groups and then not speak to their experiences at a time when quite literally you have the NFL, one of the like problematic organizations still haven't apologized to CAP, right? coming out and saying, we messed up. If you, if the NFL is saying yeah. we messed up and you did it, I don't know what to tell you, bro. I don't, I don't know what to, and that's literally the example. I'm like, and a, no one expected the NFL to be saying, we're going to play the black national anthem at our games. Honestly, that is On like. On internet? <laughs> <laughs> Are you kidding me? I will so be. If you are, sorry, go ahead. Go no, ahead, I'm sorry. just saying I will be crediting at its <laughs> at its Averagenomics at Anna Gifty, but that is such a good way to say it. If the NFL can do it, hun, you you can do it, little science Come YouTuber. On. Yeah. Come on, and they probably have more to lose. You know, a lot of their fans are probably racist. Mm -hmm. So you know, the couple thousand fans that of yours that might feel some type of way about you saying something, let them go. Just know that as you say something, as you speak truth to power, people will be attracted to that. 
So what is lost will be gained in time, but you have to go out and, and, and step out for those who are being, you know, marginalized and who have been marginalized for time. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It, it's a, honestly a dark realization for us to see like that as science communicators, we've always thought, you know, it's a very progressive field. Like we're talking about climate change and we're talking about things <laughs> that are like, you know, talking about equality between people. And then even us like being gay was an issue and us like talking about right. racial issues. It's like, we imagine that it's kind of this, world of people that are progressive and then sometimes you're like oh my god it's really not and oh. i think it's because of people's fear to address those things and it just compounds upon itself you said something really interesting early on that i think also is linked to the science field to, to the economics field sure. led economics into stem <laughs> like into the acronyms acronym stem and it's a little bit about this idea of white people white men who are told that they know a lot and they, it's like there's something about science where I think you 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 feel like you're studying the world in an, in this like objective way, and you're told, and you a lot of these people are so smart that I think it's harder for them to then have to <laughs> deal with the fact that there's these other things in the world that are really complex that they might have gotten wrong. And I think I sometimes think that maybe we see that a bit in our community where it's like, okay, we're trying to like all admit our the fact that we were wrong. Like, yeah, okay, we love science, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we can't admit that we're wrong, which is, I think, harder sometimes for scientists because they have to keep up this veil that they are like almost so smart. So yeah. smart. And you see that, like, that's a big issue with even the culture of it. Like, we always try and like you definitely do on Twitter, like try and be like funny and cool and be like, you can be like a real person. But a lot of our I'm peers, good. yeah, they don't, they actually are like, they don't even talk in a very realistic way wow. sometimes because it's like, I'm like, Hey, it's just like a culture. Like I feel bad, but sometimes it's like literally that like nerdy, like voice thing that like, it's sure. just like, I think it's maybe a little bit hard to admit mistakes in the culture of science. And maybe there's like an interesting way of, I mean, it's ironic, like, though, because it really shouldn't, because the whole field of science is being like, oh, we're testing and checking our mistakes and then yeah, having people yeah. criticize our work and then we're going to redo it. And But you're right. There is like even as science communicators, this this wall you have to break down for yourself where it's like people sometimes think, you know, everything. And then you start to want to keep that image up. Right. Like even for us, like if we see fans or someone on the street, like sometimes the image is like, because we've made all these videos, we just like knew everything. It's like, no, we, right. we literally like, like they're like little <laughs> projects for us that we make and then we right. go find the information. And I think that can be like a trap for a lot of people where they want to keep up that image that they, and it, and it leads to that sort of feeling of, I can't admit I'm wrong because then it breaks the illusion that I'm perfect. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I mean, you know, science does have that problem of huh, white men being the standard, mm -hmm. and anybody who deviates from that is not objective. Mm -hmm. And it's definitely when you talk about race and you're not a white person or somebody who's far removed from white, like, you know, far removed from like different racial groups, even if you are like a non black person, like, what I've noticed is that you have to somehow sort of separate your race and ethnicity from your who you are hmm. in order to address those things and be like considered objective enough right wow. um and so there's this idea that you know my identity cannot be wrapped up in the science and in the questions and in the research that i pursue and i think that's wrong and i think that also comes from a place of pride right if you think you know everything 
Well, then there's nothing left to know. Yeah, yeah, time to die. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, so why are you here, right? Are you, and, and I think that that's kind of what I'm getting at, right? Like, I think people who subscribe to that, you know, I already know everything that I know, and, you know, there's nothing left to know or whatever. You know, at this point, then you're just flexing, right? And so who are you, like, who are you doing this for? Yeah. And this is something that I mentioned to somebody um, yesterday. You know, when you are given a position of leadership and responsibility, you have to approach it humbly. There is absolutely no way people are going to be best served if you are coming in with, you know, your whole ego and your whole pride. Like, it, it, there's no, there's nothing to gain from that. If what you are putting forth is just something that is self-serving to you and not serving the community that you're hoping to educate, especially as a science community, I communicated, that's like the essence a science communication. Mm-hmm. So if you if you think you know everything, then who are you talking to? Mm-hmm. Are you in the mirror like, you know, um, mayor bitch from Mr. <laughs> <laughs> Ray's show? Like, just kind of <laughs> rapping at yourself? Like, what are you doing? You know, you, you have to be talking to somebody. And so this idea of, like, I, you have to learn and that sort of thing. I'll give you an example. Recently, I posted a Twitter thread. Again, we keep referring to Twitter. That's kind of where I'm active, y'all. So again, follow me. It's economic. Um... And I, I kind of laid out why I thought econo- economics was interesting. Now, granted, I just graduated from college last year. So all I know about economics is what I was taught, which was neoclassical, meaning that like this is traditionally what people learn, but there's certain sort of deviations from that, like heterodox and stratification, which touch on like groups and also different ways of thinking, um, interdisciplinary. Um, and so I, I kind of talk about like, oh, like it's about this maximization thing that I mentioned before. And people start, you know, like, ah, I don't know, I don't agree with this, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, okay, let me take this, first of all, let me not take this personally, because they're not coming from me, they're coming for this overall concept of, you know, profit maximization and how it contributes to capitalism. And so, you know, I was listening to the feedback and I was like, this is actually good, like good, like it's like good feedback and I'm understanding like the different nuances of economic thought. Let me go ahead and attach this to the thread. Let me go ahead and retweet some of these, you know, other thoughts. And, you know, what I didn't realize was that people were watching me do that. Obviously, they were. Like, I'm on Twitter. But, you know, like, people were like, wow, the way Anna's kind of engaging with the different types of perspectives is, like, not something I've seen before in the economic space. Hmm. And like, if you, it's, it's really, it's really an idea, it's, it's really an economic idea at the core of it. You know, this idea of, like, if there's a lot of things, you know, a lot of ideas competing against each other. At some point, the best idea will rise to the top. Now, if you're just competing against yourself, how do you know it's the best idea? You wow. know? So, like, you 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 have to invite critical analysis of what you already know and, you know, admit when you don't know something so that that hole can be filled. But, again, that comes from humility. If you are not humble enough to accept criticism and correction and feedback, you in the wrong industry. That's so fascinating. And it's yeah. so freaking true. And I'm like, I always go like so extra and like whatever. And I don't know why I should do this. But I'm like, <laughs> it makes me like, I, tr- I truly believe that the world would be a better place under a matriarchy. And it's also, it's like, we need to, <laughs> we need to yeah. teach boys to like this skill. I do. I think there is something about masculinity that's really about like, you know, it's like, it's like you have a powerful stance on something. You're, it's, yep. it's not built in teaching men about humility and it's like that is really interesting so it's like obviously we know that these industries are dominated science economics by men 
it's like okay if if like we're if men are too afraid to like go down the avenue of like giving up their power then at least you need to understand humility and understand this ability to know that you don't know everything and to mm-hmm. know that like a lot of these perspectives that 2008 financial crisis if you're listening to black and brown economists you maybe would have avoided this like detrimental historical moment literally and i think we also need to stop rewarding um sort of mechanisms that feed into this i need like i like this power grabbing that especially happens in the academic space right so you think about you know certain fields won't even acknowledge you unless you've published in top five journals mm. or unless you are from an ivy league university i'm gonna i'm about to show economics as just a little bit <laughs> <laughs> And say that there was a paper that recently came out that showed that most of the top five economic publications um, in recent years came from three zip codes. Wow. Those zip codes are Cambridge, which houses Harvard and MIT, and um, this sort of um, organization called the National Bureau of Economic Research, which is a great organization. And shout out to Jim Paterba, who I like. He's awesome. <laughs> um, I, I'm not trying to get my from that, but... <laughs> You know, let me go ahead and just cover my bases. And it came from Stanford and it came from Chicago, specifically U Chicago, um, which has the most Nobel laureate um, in economics. So you have three zip codes contributing to what people consider the creme de la creme of economics research for some folks, right? That's a problem. Yes. Three zip codes and all of them are gentrified. Mm-hmm. Yikes! Yeah, you know, that, that, there's a problem here. You know what I'm saying? It's also and, like, oh, go, yeah. go. No, 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 you can go. <laughs> well, I was going back to what you said, like going about with. <laughs> we're gonna go back to ripping on Harvard, although we do love Harvard. <laughs> but like, this is something we've been doing research because we're trying to figure out how we check the power at B that we're in, which is Silicon Valley, and what. I, on my research, I'm realizing is that it's these people who are only hiring at Google and Facebook because of like MIT or these yes! universities. Yeah. So it was like, it was, um, I'm really curious and I really am like going to be releasing a video. We're, we're trying to get, I think we need to all know who's building the algorithms that control our um, world. Yes. And so yes, not, yes, yes. There, there's a pipeline thing where they're saying like, there's, there's, it's disgusting the amount of black people who work in Silicon Valley. It is it's so low and 9.7% of graduates in um, computer engineering in 2019 were black, but it's like, they're not necessarily graduating from MIT, but Google, they're all like um, jerking each other off and an MIT only hiring people from MIT. And they're, they're still buying into the system that as if those literally the zip codes you kind of mentioned as, as if those zip codes matter when they don't, people are graduating from all over this country. And if you allow those other people in, as we've said throughout this whole podcast, that's going to make things better. So hearing you say that about economics is just mirroring exactly what I think the issue is with Silicon Valley. And so it's like, it's all linked. Yeah. Yeah. There was this hashtag on Twitter some time ago called Black in the Ivory it actually became sort of a movement. Um, and I contributed quite a bit to it, actually. And, you know, one thing I said was, you know, you find out that there are organizations and academic institutions that say they can't find Black talent. That's what they always say. Where's the Black talent? I can't find it. Where are they? I'm looking. I'm looking. Where are they at? But then you find out they've never recruited from a historically black college or university ever. 
literally a university with black talent. Yeah, it's literally like they're <laughs> they're, been there. they're right there. Yeah. Or they go to the, they only go to three of them, which by the way, they're amazing universities. So Howard, Morehouse, and Spelman. But there are plenty other HBCUs across the nation. And you find out they've never touched a single one. And I think it really comes down again to people try and say that my identity is separated from my science. No, it's not because you are making decisions based on who you want to work with or who you want working for you based on your identity. You're screening based off the fact that you went to MIT, that, you know, you're a white guy, that, you know, you had um, this sort of privilege growing up. And so what you're trying to do is you're trying to replicate Mm -hmm. to some degree the experience that you had in the workplace with the people that you hire. Silicon Valley looks the way it does because people don't want to admit that the biases that inform their way of life inform their workplace, quite frankly. And so shout out to Black and AI, um, Dr. Redia Abebe, who is one of the co-founders, and Dr. Timna Geru, who's also the other co-founder, who has done a really good job of like bringing together researchers who are really looking at algorithmic bias and how that's about to affect hiring in a big way, right? You got some white folks coding up, you know, algorithms to detect who's going to be a criminal. And then when you use those same algorithms on NFL players, all of a sudden they're considered criminals. Huh? What was your training set, bro? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no. What was your training set? You brought a, a bunch of, you know, white people who were in, um, who were considered good in the system into whatever set you were training your algorithm on. And then the black folks you put in are disproportionately associated with crime. Of course, when you put it on some random black person, it's gonna show that they're a criminal. And this again comes back to this idea of you cannot give power, power cannot be concentrated with one group. It's it's going to hurt everybody. And I think we're seeing that to some degree right now where anti-black racism is being explicitly stated and addressed in a big way. Um, it's, you know about four centuries coming, yeah. quite quickly, right? But, you know, we're here now. And so the question is, how are people going to redistribute power? Are people going to redistribute power? And once they do, what are going to be the impacts on the rest of society? Wow. You are so amazing to talk to. Yeah. I'm just oh, like, okay. I'm like, we so need to have part eloquent. two. We need to have part three. <laughs> like, you're just really? so, yes, you're so smart. Um, one, I, I'm like, we, we are running out of time and we need to wrap it up. And I'm like, I'm Aww. literally, I'm just like, oh. but like, what, like, we're talking a lot about America. What are, what's economics like around the world? And like, um, I don't know. I'm just curious, like when you were talking question. about that Nobel laureate meeting, was that in America or was that the world? Mm-hmm. Like how mm. is white supremacy being held up through economics on an international scale? Like. I'm just curious because, you know, there's so many other people around the world who might even be listening to this, but be like, oh, does this does this apply to me or not? Like, I mean, recently, um, the Duchess of um, Sussex and Prince Harry came <laughs> out and said that, you know, Great Britain needs to right its wrongs. Great Britain has many, many, many wrongs, as does all of Europe, because colonialism and slavery were a thing. And a lot of black and brown folks around the world live in countries that were probably colonized at some point in time. For example, the country that I was born in, Ghana, 
um, was colonized um, up until 1957 for like a, a brief period of time. And so when we talk about economics and who has power, white supremacy is all up in that, right? Because, you know, those who have power currently within the economic system, even if we broaden it globally, are white, you know? And, and the, the power doesn't really change just because the geography does, right? In Europe, the numbers of black women graduating with you know, economics degrees is far lower. I actually don't know the number yet, but it is bad. It's really bad. And so the question of, you know, creating a, a mechanism that, you know, shifts inequitable structures is really a global thing. It's not concentrated in America, though I will say in economics, American economists have a lot of power and they sort of set the standard for everybody else. Hmm. And one mm -hmm. thing I'll say is, for example, you have a lot of African economists who understand their continent and their countries respectfully. Um, but if you talk about research that's done in Africa, development economics research, and who gets cited, it's not Africans, it's not those who are actually living in those countries. It's white folks who go to those countries for about two to three months and then use that and come back and say, well, I'm trying to get tenure. Ooh, let me stop. <laughs> wow. You know no, but that's like, like people that's, in Ghana, for example. Wow. So like right? economists and, 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 oh, yeah. And it happens in science too. Yeah. I remember when I was um, a pre-med and I was thinking about epidemiology in particular as a field I want to go in for grad school. And I went to a global health conference at, you know, an Ivy League university, since we just coming for all of them. And <laughs> I was in the room and I was like, this room, it's 40 shades of beige <laughs> for the topic that we're talking about, which is like, you know, how do we talk about malaria in West Africa? Why are you guys looking like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't want to say anything, but like, I was kind of really confused. And again, as folks were like, but I'm so well-meaning. I care so much about the world. I care so much. It's, that's fine. But are you working with those on the ground? Are you amplifying those who don't typically get cited because of the color of their skin or their ethnicity or their race or whatever. And this is what makes it a global thing, right? Obviously America is going through <laughs> a moment, but everybody else needs to catch up as well because there's a lot of um, grappling with white supremacy that needs to happen over, you know, hopefully the rest of our existence that, you know, can really kind of get at the core of amplifying and uh, uplifting black and brown people. Yeah. And as you and as you said earlier, and as is fundamentally true, that will help the world. That's actually Literally. essential. And if we don't do that, just even look at climate change, which we think is the biggest issue of our time. If you don't uh, approach it from the perspective, like you said, with the financial crisis, with environmental racism in mind, you're not going to be able to do it. It's like it's literally right. it's literally the pinnacle of our ability to survive on this planet is to right. take down the systems of white supremacy. If you don't do it. Truly, as humanity, we're fucked. Like it's it's actually it's just it's true. And I'm so it's so yeah. important right now that we're having these conversations because it's like it's actually like for the first time I'm starting to be like, could I think this could happen? I think we could. It could. I think we it could, could do it. Yeah. And I think it comes down to prioritizing the young generation. I'm gonna do a yep. quick, you know. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I think you know with the Sadie Collective that I co-founded um, with my wonderful co-founder Hunter Trotaday, like. What we're trying to do is say, okay, we believe that black women are the future 
um, with regards to economics, policy, finance, data science, all of the things in between. And so we are gonna work with other young black women to uplift our community so that we get these opportunities and these resources that will allow us to do this work well and to benefit our communities, that whichever ones we decide to sit in. And I think when we talk about global, globally speaking, like, for example, I, I read a, a Harvard Business Review article some time ago that said in 2050, Africa is gonna be home to the largest workforce um, in the world. Now, if that's the case, <laughs> <laughs> why are people ignoring it? You know? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, like that's soon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can't ignore this huge continent that has so much vibrant and intelligent and wonderful young talent. So many young people are in, you know, the continent and in respective countries and communities that are ready and able and excited to change the world, but they're not being given opportunities to do that simply because the economic systems in which they sit in are still being impacted by the colonizers that came there 50 years ago. And you have, for, exa for example, Francophone countries still use French currency why? Yeah. Why is that still a thing? What is going on? And so when we talk about economics permeating every single aspect of life, we literally mean that the way that you live is impacted by economics. And so it's so important that the voices of black and brown people are amplified in the profession so that everybody is heard and that the economic systems reflect the needs of those people. Wow. Oh my God. You've literally made me be like, I want to go back to school and study economics. <laughs> <laughs> have you gone back to Ghana? Like, have yes. you, what, where did you go? What, what uh, city? Yes. I went to Kumasi, uh, where I'm originally from. Wow. And, um, I also always touch base in Accra. That's where the airport is. But yeah, actually going to Ghana really was what inspired me to think about, you know, obviously I think Ghana is a wonderful place and there's definitely aspects of Ghana that are as developed, if not more developed than the United States. But there were other aspects I was like, man, like this is really a structural issue. And how do you address structural issues? And that was actually when I was in high school, I hadn't even thought about economics as a potential career. And actually going to Ghana as a 16 year old actually prompted me to explicitly look up African economic development videos on TED. And that's sort of what kind of led me to think, hey, there's a way to use data and stuff. but. My parents still want me to become a medical doctor, so I guess I got to do that. But I came back to that when I was deciding to change my major. And honestly, that's what fueled me um, to think more critically about, you know, how do you better communities? Is this the idea of human capital, um, which is the idea for me that got me into economics? It's the idea of building skills and knowledge amongst a group of people or an, an individual. And there are different ways you can do that through economics. And so when I saw that that was something I could do and kind of relating it to my experience in Ghana, I was like, man, this is, it just makes sense. Nice. What, what am I doing? Yeah. <laughs> What's Kumasi like? I, I just finished the book Homegoing by Yak Yasi. Oh, oh, you got to show my ass. I haven't read that book. <laughs> oh, oh my God. No, like no way am I saying that. Like I, I heard um, it good though. Uh, like, <laughs> absolutely incredible book but Kum like they are they spend a lot of time in kumasi and i'm just like yeah. curious is it a, is it a huge city like what is it's it like? huge it's yeah. huge yeah so ghana has a like 200 plus ethnic groups within um the actual country because you know colonialism just like drew lines it was like yep 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 yeah. good but like drew it through like multiple ethnic groups and so um 
I shouldn't say 200. I think it's like 50, actually. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm capping. <laughs> His language is at 200. Excuse me. So for me, Kumasi, Kumasi was just really an amazing experience. And I think for me, and for also African-Americans who go back to Ghana, recently they did Europe Return as a campaign to get African-Americans in particular to come back to Ghana. It's just so, you, your identity is solidified. You feel mm. me? Like, you, you're just like, wow, this is so rich. And it, for me, it was just such a, an honest experience. I, I truly embraced it. I, you know, spent time with the kids in my neighborhood. I went out, you know, to the market and and I spoke to people and I ate sugar cane, which is delicious. <laughs> and, you know, just kind of embracing every aspect of it and being like, you know, this is, I can call this place home and I, I can, you know, embrace those who, who still don't know where their lineage comes from and say, this is also home for you if you want it to be. And so I, I think for me, it was just like a, a humbling experience. It, it really grounded me. And it also sort of, I don't know, it was interesting. Like, and gotta be removed this way. <laughs> I was talking, I was talking like this in the market with my dad and some random lady I don't know. And I still don't know to this day was like, can you speak the local language? And I was like, no, she was like, disappointment. And then walked away. <laughs> I was like, who was that? <laughs> my dad was like, that's what happens all the time. And I was just kind of like, but you know, it's sort of this comfort level of like, we're family, we're kin. And so I'm going to go ahead and, you know, obviously reach out to you, call you out if I need to, if I need to correct you, it's out of love ultimately. And I think for me, that was just really, really grounding. So I, I loved it. Highly recommend. Can I yeah. Cause I'm after finishing this book, I was like, I really want to go to Kamasi. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> obviously you'd have a very different experience than you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But yeah. Going, make sure you go with the Ghanaian um, tour guide when you arrive because they'll see y'all skin and they'll be like actually we're up this by 300 yeah, yeah. percent." so <laughs> definitely go with somebody who's haggling okay. my mom was haggling like crazy and i was like wow this is like the olympics so oh my god somebody yeah, yeah. Okay, good to know. <laughs> all right well once we all oh. vaccine we can yeah post vaccine <laughs> we'll come to heart. we'll come to maryland first say mm -hmm. hi and, uh, yeah. oh that was so yeah, thank you thank, so much i feel literally oh, thank you so much more educated i really really appreciate you taking the time oh. to like you're so eloquent you you know what you're talking about and it's you're also like inspiring and just like awesome oh. to talk to so thank you so much for coming on the podcast this um, was such an honor <laughs> oh my god why don't you like you already talked about your twitter but is there anywhere else that people can oh, check you sure. out or follow you or, or anything you want people to check out yeah so thanks so much again for this amazing opportunity i am on twitter as i've mentioned a couple times during this podcast <laughs> um it's afronomics and i'm also on instagram now so that's just my name Anna Gifty O. And the Gifty is just like gift with the Y at the end, the letter O. <laughs> and so, yeah, you can just follow me on those two platforms. You can engage me. I'm pretty friendly, actually. So, like, you know, just feel free to, like, message me. Don't don't hit me up with anything random or wild. I, I will definitely ignore that. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so, so, so freaking much. And, like, we're going to have part two when we start to really be like, okay, economics 101, part two, part yeah, three, part like, four, gotta, and it's all the end of time. Like, economics for dummies. Like, we're going to go pre-order that. Okay. Thank Excellent. you. All thank right. you. Bye. See you later. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.